0: The proverb that we get from verse 30 of chapter 19 and verse 16 of chapter 20 really serves as a summary statement for the last couple of narratives we've gone through in the Gospel of Matthew, that many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, the little children who were being pushed away by the disciples were actually the ones who Jesus said to these belong the kingdom of God, those who would have been thought of, the last were actually first. Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one lost sheep. We covered that narrative not long ago. And last time, the rich young ruler, who many would have thought was going to be the closest to the kingdom of God by his own merit, goes away sorrowfully from Jesus. And we concluded last time that we are all utterly dependent on the transformational grace of God to save us. Because with God, all things are possible, even though it is impossible with man to save himself from sin. Peter, however, raises an interesting question after watching this all unfold in verse 27, where he said, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter and company, God bless them, they did not share the same love of money and possessions that the rich young ruler had. In fact, they have left homes and businesses and family behind to serve God. However, this statement isn't entirely innocent. You know, he, he seems to be implying, hey, Jesus, we did that stuff. We did the hard work. We sacrificed. We're going to be rewarded, right? To which Jesus gives a wonderful reply that is, is both encouraging and challenging for us this morning. First, he directs his answer to the apostles specifically in verse 28, saying, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is referring to the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ that will take place according to Revelation chapter 20, where Jesus Christ will literally rule and reign on earth, by the way, for a thousand years as a part of this earthly kingdom that will take place at the end of the age. And during this time, his apostles will also have 12 thrones judging or governing the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, all believers will have some kind of authority during this time, as Revelation 3.21 and 2.26 refer to believers like us, sitting on thrones and having authority over the nations. Even angels will have authority over, according to 1 Corinthians 6. Now, many theologians Notably presbyterians i found have allegorized or spiritualized this text uh, saying that this reign of christ to come will not be a literal one but a, a but a in a spiritual sense jesus is ruling and reigning over the world right now which is partially true uh, jesus is sovereign over the universe but he is not yet ruling from his father David's throne yet. And, and there, there are just too many little inconsistencies like that for me to personally buy that view of uh, of end times. I, I, I can't interpret Revelation 20 that way because of what I see. And the, the inconsistencies add up. One, one commentator who holds to that belief once remarked rather hilariously We now have to wonder what our Lord meant when he said the 12 tribes of Israel. I'd like to wager a guess. I think it's the 12 tribes of Israel. (laughs) But what do I know? I'm going to flesh out what the rest of the Bible says about end times when we get to Chapter 24 of the Gospel of Matthew. 24 and 25 really speak so much about end times theology. But I just wanted to toss that out there for today to kind of whet your appetite for when we finally arrive at those chapters. But to the rest of us, Jesus promised in verse 29 here, and to everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, Will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. Jesus will not forget anyone's sacrifice, whatever it looks like. The missionary and martyr Jim Elliot once said, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." I love that quote, so I'm going to read it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. After all, that rich young ruler that we covered the other week, he's not enjoying his wealth anymore, is he? Jim Elliot is, though. Likewise, whatever you give up for God... Either to become a Christian, as some people do. We all have idols and sins. We need to lay down on the altar. When we say yes to Jesus, there's things we have to say no to. And whatever we have to say no to, to say yes to Christ, whatever sins we must repent of, Jesus is promising here, it is worth it. And whether it be that or or just a act of worship that we give up on behalf of Jesus out of gratefulness for him, Jesus says you will receive a hundredfold of that from him. Now that's not always on this side of eternity. Sometimes it is. But the point is it's always worth it to lay down whatever it is that you're called to lay down, to follow Jesus' plan for your life you know my pastor he himself had a uh, he left a full scholarship in college to go pursue to become a to become a pastor left up a lucrative career opportunity that he had and people would have called that reckless people would have called that crazy and all kinds of other negative things but what god calls you to do if god has called you to do it we're promised it's worth it After all, to to borrow some language from another prominent pastor, Pastor John Piper, he said, when I reach heaven's gates, what do I want to present with to him with what I did with the life he gave to me? Do I want to say, I have labored for you, I have supported your ministries, and out of the gratefulness of my heart, I, I did all this in your name? Or do I want to say, as some will, here's what I did with the life you gave me, Lord. Here's my seashell collection. I I, I don't know about you guys. I don't want to say that on that day. However, and this is a pretty big however, as good as laboring for the kingdom is, and as much as I want to encourage all of you to be engaged in kingdom work here on earth, and you know, to, to build that resume of things we did out of a grateful heart to Jesus for that day, to for have us all hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't do it out of. We must remember, we don't do that out of an expectation for reward. Nor do we belittle and think ourselves better than those who have come late to the party. Or those who perhaps haven't labored as hard as I did in the flesh? To clarify what I mean, Jesus gives a wonderful proverb, most likely an original one. Some people think it might have been a proverb in the area. I think this is original. But Jesus said, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus wants to warn Peter and the other apostles not to take pride in their labor as if that is what makes them better than those who would follow afterwards. And the analogy here is perfect for that. Because let me ask you a logical question. How can someone be both last and first at the same time? It's a good question. Because there's only way, only one way that can happen, that the first can be last and the last shall be first, it's if everything ends in a dead heat. If there's a tie at the end of the race, if you will. Only then is the person last is also first. I mean, next next week when my girls are with me again, if uh, if there's a if after service and they all rush down to coffee hour to partake in some of the sweets that we have after service, if they all arrive at the table at the same time, who's last? Who's first? It's all of them. They all made it the same way. They're all first and they're all last. And that's what the kingdom is like. Because none of us are outright winners because it's Christ's victory. It's not mine. So I can't claim the the victory. It's only by God's grace that we're getting in in the first place. And because it's God's grace, and because we are partaking in the victory, we're not last either. We're not losers. We're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Yes, we're more than conquerors, but not of ourselves, not through our own efforts, but because of Christ in us. And Jesus expounds on this idea of the first being last and shows us how this applies to us as we we go into chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And by the way, whenever you see that word for or therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. Cute little Phrase, but it's absolutely true that when you see that word for there, that means okay. This is tying into something. This is showing that what's being said here at the end at the beginning of chapter twenty ties in to what we were reading in chapter nineteen. So we're meant to see this as an explanation of it. This this parable, this um, yeah, this parable doesn't exist unto itself, isolated from the context of it. So to set the stage here. The master of the house is God, obviously. The laborers are those who have responded to the call of following Jesus. And the denarius payment that they will receive is the promise of salvation and eternal life. While the vineyard is the world that we labor in. And by the way, yes, as Christians, we do labor in this world, if you haven't noticed. Even as Christians, not towards our salvation, Because that's been secured through the cross. There's nothing more that we can add to that. But we labor for Christ because we are saved. I hope that makes sense. You you see, the gospel is that Jesus saves us, and then he cleans us up. Then he sanctifies us, and we live for him. Salvation happens first, though. You see, it's not that we work and then become saved, it's we saved and now we labor for him. And not out of obligation or out of expectation for reward, but out of love. You see, it's not an accident that God saved Israel in the book of Exodus from the Egyptians. He saved them, brought them through the Red Sea, and then he gave them the law. He didn't give them the law and then save them. He saved them and then gave them the law. He saved them and then said, here's how to please me. Because there's no way you can please him before you've experienced his grace. The book of Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So getting back to this analogy in Chapter 20. During the harvest season, a vineyard owner would need to rapidly expand his staff for this short period of time during the harvest. You know, they don't need all these workers all year long, just during the harvest. Hence the existence of the day laborer. And this was not a lucrative career, by the way. It offered no stability no assurance of being rehired, and was one of the worst paying jobs in all of Israel. In in fact, in terms of income and status, it was just above begging. Just above. These people would wait in the marketplace completely dependent on somebody to find them and ask them for work. So when they were offered a denarius... Which was what an honorable profession would make in a day. That's what a soldier's wage was for a day. They jumped on this lucrative uh, job opportunity. And in Israel, they would work roughly from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Hence the, you know, first hour, the third hour, the 11th hour, you know, so. It was based off of where you are in that time frame. So at roughly 6 a.m., he finds his first set of laborers, gets them, in the, uh, gets them in the vineyard. Time goes on, though, and the master eventually acquires more laborers, beginning in verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, he, and to them he said, go, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will pay, I will give you. And so they went. Going out again in about the 6th hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So this would be roughly 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. accordingly. And the day continues to get later until verse 6, where it says, On about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And he said to them, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. (laughs) So this is around 5 p.m. with a 6 p.m. wrap time. It doesn't get any closer to the end of the day than this. Uh, The the sun is already going down. The, The hard labor is already done. It's starting to get cooler, so this is an easier time to be working. These people, obviously, this late in the day, they're not going to contribute so much to the labor that it was going to be a success or it wasn't going to be a success because of these guys. They just kind of show up at the end of the day help out a little bit. And out of the compassion of the master, he extends his job offer to them. And finally, after as 6 p.m. comes around, uh, due to mosaic laws that regulated day laborers, they had to be They had to have their wages settled at the end of the day. There was no every other week policy, we'll pay you every two weeks, no automatic deposit. No, at the end of the day, you got your pay back in Israel. So we see that begin to unfold in verse 8, where it says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired at about the eleventh hour came, each of them received... A denarius. Now when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us? Who have borne the heat and burden of the day and the scorching heat? Everything about this is bizarre by the way. There, there is no context in ancient Israel that makes this somehow make sense. <laughs> Nobody paid in reverse order like that. And and well, let's face there, there was no union set day wage. Anything like that. So let's face this head on. You know, since we have as much <laughs> Cultural significance to what happened here, as they did. Don't you feel sympathy for those guys who worked all day in the sun? And these guys came in at the very last hour when it was getting cooled off anyway, and they received the same thing that you got. Does that strike you as somewhat unfair? I mean, if the ACLU existed 2,000 years ago, they get sued. But is it unfair? Perhaps there's more to it than meets the eye. So the master responds to this allegation in verse 13. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Did I not choose to give this last worker what I give to you? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. (laughs) You know what would have been fair? Objectively speaking, you know what would have been fair? Giving all of these workers next to nothing. That would have been fair. Everyone would have gotten the same rate for their end of the day, and they all would have gotten paid poorly. Remember, we're talking about day laborers, the people who made the bottom of the barrel, grateful to even have a job. Would have been fair to give these guys next to nothing. In fact, these men on the 6 a.m. team were content with their denarius, and appreciated it for the blessing that it was. Find me another vineyard owner that would pay those rates. You wouldn't have found one in Israel 2,000 years ago. And they were content with it until they saw what other people had. That was the difference maker. Church, jealousy and covetousness is the thief of joy and contentment. It will rob you blind. See, that mindset of, oh, this person has that, I want that, oh, uh, uh," that, that will make you forget about the grace of God that he has given you and make you focus on things that are equitable rather than focus on what is gracious. You can't see the grace in your life when you're so focused on fairness and equity. You can't see them both at the same time. Man, I wish I had time to get into the political ramifications of that, but I'll have to stop there for now. See, what this text says, the reason this is a bit of a rebuke to Peter and the apostles is that they were poised to view themselves as the 6 a.m. team of Jesus Christ. (laughs) They were the first ones Jesus called. And yeah, they would face persecution later on. They were going to face the the pain of the hot burning sun, if you will, to carry the analogy. And this is at a funny point. Three years into their ministry, of Jesus' ministry, I should say, people were starting to come to Jesus by the masses. And it would have been so easy to look down on these newcomers as them being the superior ones. Them being the formally trained apostles of Jesus. Especially considering they were just arguing over who was the greatest back in chapter 18. You know that was their mentality. Able to say, oh, but Jesus, I worked so hard. I did this. I've done that for you. Great. Now, did you do that for me or for a reward? So Jesus must answer this issue of the heart. And he says, the first shall be last, you who think you're first, and the last first. In other words, it's the same reward of eternal life. Again, the denarius is the, is salvation and eternal life. That reward belongs to all who believe at the end of the age. We too must remember, 2000 years after this parable, we don't come to Jesus to get stuff. We don't come to Jesus even for the eternal rewards that the Bible does speak about, but no, we come to Jesus to get Jesus. We don't serve him out of a desire for stuff. We don't worship him because it fills our emotional needs. We don't serve him and worship him out of some desire to meet our physical needs. We serve him because we love him. We worship him because he's worthy. And out of gratitude for the cross where he purchased our salvation, the greatest display of love the world has ever seen, do we serve him and worship him forever? And yes, people, but yet people struggle with this concept. To this day, I've heard people say they reject the idea of deathbed conversions because it seems unfair to them. How could someone go their whole life as not a Christian and then suddenly change their mind? I've been a Christian my whole life, tithing and serving, holding multiple titles at the church. How come they will get the same reward as me? Well, let's address that directly. Here's why you don't deserve that reward either. you didn't earn your salvation any more than that person did. We all ought to praise God for every soul that is saved. Such a person, instead of boasting in those words, should be grateful to have had lived such a privileged life, to have gone, come up in the church your whole life and to have partook in building the kingdom of God through your tithes, through your serving, through the things that were able to happen for the gospel, through your work. You should be grateful for what you've contributed towards the kingdom. But this covetousness, this pride has robbed you of your reward. It, it, that heart is the same heart as the Pharisees that we've been discussing going through the scriptures. It's the same heart that we see in the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son with the older brother who was so full of himself and so angry that his father wasn't celebrating him. He was celebrating this guy who came home and what a waste he's made of his life. That he couldn't rejoice in the amazing grace that the Father had showed the prodigal son. The true son who was truly alienated from the Father was living with him the whole time. In fact, that's the point of that parable, to beware of that. So, whether the invitation to the kingdom is accepted early or late in our lives, the invitation itself is a gift of grace that not everyone is going to enjoy we ought to rejoice over it however it comes but let's put the shoe on the other foot just for a half, just for a half a second here let's remember 11 out of the 12 apostles didn't grow up to become old men but died martyr's deaths things didn't work out so great for the 12th one either and yet somehow Those men who gave their life painfully for the kingdom, I mean, just Google how the apostles died. It's it's, it's a brutal story. Somehow those men will share the same gift of eternal life as we do? That's not fair. That's not fair at all. But it sure is grace. So, My time is gone from me, but I want I want to throw out a few final thoughts for us to ponder as we bring it to a close this morning. First point the gift of eternal life is available to all. Not just those who labored all day in the hot sun and paid the most. No, it is open to all. Two, God redeems all who are willing. Notice nobody was turned away in this parable. Three, Jesus has established the terms. We don't renegotiate our contracts. <laughs> he offers the terms. Four, there was labor and toil for all who came to Christ. Even in that last hour. <laughs> that tells me, you know, some of us will face more difficulties as a Christian in this life, but all are somehow in some way engaged in kingdom work. So wherever you are, there's still work to be done. None of us have spiritually retired yet. Five, humility is the key towards having the right attitude towards God and others in this parable. Six, Jesus continues continues to call mankind to salvation all day long. I mean, notice the master kept going back to the marketplace, didn't he? And anyone who was willing, he brought back. So likewise, Jesus continues to call others to himself every hour. And we learn from the 11th hour laborers, it's never too late. Not till the sun goes down in our lives is it too late. Seven, the master of the parable in verse 13 calls his laborer his friend. Did you catch that? It's subtle, but it is beautiful we we do not mindlessly or thanklessly serve jesus out of obligation or desire for reward but rather we are his friends and john 15:15 15, 15, jesus says no longer do i call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but i have called you friends Beware making your relationship with Jesus one out of obligation or a simple cause and effect relationship. I come here, I do the service, I say the prayers, I participate in the confession thing, and we're good, right? No, it's not this exchange thing. It's a relationship from the heart built on grace and love, not obligation. It's a relationship, not a religion. That's what it that means. That pithy statement we hear sometimes, that's what it means. And finally, God's grace is amazing. Should Jesus give us what we deserve and what we have labored for? You guys know how it is. We'd all be dead and in hell if that's how it was, if Jesus gave us what we deserved. And the prophet Isaiah said all of our righteousness, all that we have labored for is as filthy rags. But here's the good news: the thief on the cross that we read about in our first reading this morning, who experienced his conversion during his capital punishment. You don't get any later in the eleventh hour than that. <laughs> That's five fifty nine on the time clock. <laughs> he will find the same grace as the martyrs of the faith. That's incredible grace. That gives hope for everyone who hears the gospel. You know, there's a popular hymn that I'd love to do here someday when when the opportunity comes up, but it asks the question, why should I gain from his reward? Speaking of Christ, I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom. Thanks be to God.